Thanks, JP. It's always terrifying to preach after an introduction like that. Uh, this is the uh, third session today, and uh, on each occasion we've been looking at a little bit of the book of Revelation. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Revelation, uh, whether you've um, read it or not, or whether you're one of those people who always start at the end of the book so you know how it's all going to work out rather than reading the rest of the story. Uh, Revelation is absolutely vital as uh, completing the story that begins in Genesis. Uh, it's a particular type of literature. Uh, it was written to encourage the early Christians, not just as they faced persecution, but all sorts of other things as well, written to encourage them to persevere and to hold on in spite of all the challenges that they were facing. You and I may read it and think, wow, that's a bit weird, but it would have made sense in their world, and particularly as they were familiar with the type of literature that it was, which was called apocalyptic. The word comes from revelation, from revealing, which is where it gets its title from. And like most things, uh, literature, writing, always works in a certain way. And you need to know what type of literature is this in order to unlock the message. Uh, so um, a scientific report is very different from a love letter. Uh, I discourage you from writing a love letter to your bosses uh, using romantic and poetic language. It probably wouldn't go down terribly well. But equally, writing a very cold, factual, mathematical letter to your wife or your husband equally may not go down well. There are different ways in which we write for different circumstances. And when you know some of the rules and the work has been done on some of the wider literature called apocalyptic, you can begin to unlock its message. Uh, amongst other things, it's a bit like a political cartoon. You can't, in many countries, directly criticize the leadership. But our wonderful cartoonists can draw a picture that you instantly recognize, but nobody can say, oh, that's it. But you know who they're talking about, and they can get their message across. Uh, all sorts of other things uh, about the book of Revelation. Uh, that's really just to say, uh, do read it, but get some help in just unlocking it. Uh, and don't get sucked into some of the crazy ideas that are there which aren't grounded in that type of foundation. We're going to introduce you tonight to the beauty, the beast, and the lamb. I don't know whether you've ever read uh, Revelation chapter 17, but that's where we're going this evening. And uh, I will unpack some of it, not in great detail. There's a huge amount more detail than we're going to look at this evening because I want to target the climax of the chapter. But I do want to introduce, uh, why is John writing like this? What's he saying? Uh, and what's the relevance for our own day? One more thing before we read uh, Revelation 17. Uh, the book of Revelation is a bit like a film. Uh, a drama on telly, say. Uh, it used to, in my youth, 
very simply tell a story that began there, unfolded there, and ended there, plain straightforward. But my wife and I increasingly, and this may be a sign of age, we watch the telly and we think, is that happening now, or is that a flashback? I'm confused, is that for real, or is that a dream? Uh, is that a, a, a fast forward to something that hasn't been introduced? Who's that? <laughs> and the whole thing gets uh, a bit confused, doesn't it, at times? Modern technique of drama. Well, Revelation does that. Um, reality is complex. There's more than one thing going on at one time and, and more than one cause to a lot of the things going on at one time. So one of the things that Revelation does is to describe the world in which we live, but often not chronologically unfolding it logically in a linear fashion, but with a flashback here and a, 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 a look forward there. And uh, sometimes you're on this channel and seeing what's happening on Earth. Sometimes you're on the celestial channel and seeing what's happening in heaven. It's happening here, it's happening there. And uh, we're just looking at one picture tonight of uh, the book of Revelation there in chapter 17 that is about our world now and about where our world is going. So it'll come up on the screen. Uh, Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. I wonder when you last heard about that in church. The great prostitute who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of, of whose sexual immorality. Uh, the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adored with gold, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and of the impurities of uh, sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that, ca that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Are you still with me? <laughs> and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. You can say that again. <laughs> the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. 
There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you see are ten kings who've not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw, uh, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. We're just six weeks away from the uh, anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces. And in those early days, they took possession of some of the territory to the uh, west of uh, Ukraine, as you know. And since then, the war has dragged on, going through various forces and using various tactics. Sometimes it's been soldiers fighting on the front lines. Sometimes it's been hand-to-hand -hand combat. Sometimes it's been firing missiles from a distance. Sometimes it's been targeting the infrastructure and knocking out the electric systems so that people don't even have water or light to live by. All warfare goes through various phases and uses various tactics. And I unapologetically will say to you, I long and pray most days with my wife for victory for the Ukrainians, that they might have liberty again. But for the moment, some of them are living in occupied territory. C.S. Lewis described in Mere Christianity the way in which we, as Christians, are living in enemy-occupied territory. This world that God made and is rightly his is under the control, not ultimately of anyone but God, but temporarily under the control of an enemy. And this chapter describes the enemy but is heading for a key thing, looking forward to the time. It's verse 14. If you remember nothing else tonight, take this with you. 
chapter 17 and verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Not in enormous detail, because we haven't got the time, but in some detail. Let's look at the story of the enemy, the beauty and the beast, versus the lamb. We are, as Christians, at war. The world is occupied, and warfare is our complete and normal position. The early part of chapter 17 describes in some graphic detail the two great enemies that are uh, enemies of God. First of all, there is the great prostitute who is called Babylon. Here's a description of a great world power epitomized by the city of Babylon, verse 5 tells us. That's the city which is setting out to destroy God's people. And by the way in which it lives, its lifestyle, its uh, citizenship, its whole way of viewing the world is one which is seeking to build a society which leaves God out and even is opposed to God. When this revelation speaks about Babylon, the city of Babylon is a symbol for other great world powers, other great cities uh, that have set themselves up to live godless lives in opposition to the rightful God who rightfully should rule the world. John lives in the Roman Empire. Rome had many things in its favor and had achieved some great things, but ultimately it was the city that governed the world at the cost of many slaves and much freedom and was setting itself up in opposition to God. But down through history, it's interesting how you can identify what's going on very often by the name of a city. So the Second World War is associated with Berlin. And from time to time, there are cities in China like Beijing. Or currently, we talk about Moscow. And Washington and London are not exempt from this as they're addicted to all sorts of idolatry and godless patterns of living. Humanity concentrates itself in cities. It builds itself protective walls, at least in its culture, which are so often godless in their approach. And this great prostitute called Babylon, as she's described here, has a number of features attached to her. She's influential. Uh, it, she's a city with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. They've got into bed with her. They think their vested interests are served by cozying up to the great prostitute. Oh, she uses wine to drug their senses and to dull their impression of things to get their compliance. But nonetheless, she is influential. She's blasphemous. 
uh, verse 3 tells us that. She's full of blasphemous names. She sets herself up in the place of God and the loyalty and worship which is due to the living God alone. She diverts so that it's directed to her. And sometimes there have been totalitarian cities that require totalitarian worship. Oh, she is attractive. That I take to be the point of the way in which it says that she's arrayed in purple and in scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels. Here's a confession. I don't know whether you've ever been through the red light district of Amsterdam. If you have, come and see me afterwards. I have. Uh, and what's the picture? There are women dressed in red in the windows trying to attract uh, male uh, people to uh, ply their sex trade with. There are red lights and, and gold adorned the, the windows uh, and the dress. It's exactly the description that you get here as they want to seduce men into their lairs. So there is an attraction about them. Yet when you look more closely, this chapter tells us they're repulsive. Yes, they may be adorned in this wonderful apparent clothes, uh, but they hold a cup which is full of impurities. Drink this, but it may have a, a rape drug in it. <laughs> Drink this, but it may be full of harmful narcotics that won't do you any favors. It may give you temporary uh, uplift, but actually long-term could be so damaging. It's just not clean. And the overall verdict is that this great prostitute is dangerous. She has got drunk on the blood of the saints uh, and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She's there at the cost of other people's lives, not least the lives of those who are faithful to Jesus. So as one commentator has written, yeah, the magic of this great prostitute who looks on the surface so attractive and alluring. It seems to be the way of life because it leads to celebrity status, to fame, to money, to security, to whatever. But that magic is broken. The fairy godmother who has put her spell on the whole world through the brilliance of her appearance is revealed to be an old witch steeped in sorcery. She's real identity is unmasked. But she's one of the enemies of God. She has an associate, an assistant. And to the great prostitute of Babylon, the chapter turns to describe the beast from the abyss, her lackey, a servant through whom she accomplishes her will. And here John uses many and sometimes confusing images that don't always seem to be consistent. You try and draw this. Well, one question is which verse are you drawing? Because the next one may say something slightly different. But actually, you can't reduce it to a, a, a sensible drawing because imagery doesn't work quite like that. What John is about to write about the beast from the abyss is 
drawing from the prophet Daniel, Daniel uh, chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. It's drawing on an earlier chapter in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 13. But actually, not untypically, it just puts a few details a bit differently because it's a bit like a kaleidoscope almost. Things just keep changing. But we can pick up the sense of what John is saying. These, this beast is powerful. It works through human institutions and political structures. That's where, why we read about uh, uh, seven heads, uh, uh, the city being based on seven hills, there being seven kings and, and ten horns. Gosh, it tumbles out of him, doesn't it? But all of it describes, well, what city is built on seven hills? Rome, as are many other cities. My hometown is Torquay. That's built on seven hills as well. That's another story. <laughs> the beast works through governments and through kings. And many scholars spend their time trying to say, oh, yeah, uh, seven kings. Let's relate them to seven Roman emperors around at the time. That's to miss the point, actually, because this is a recurring symbol. Seven is a symbol of fullness, and it happens time and time again. That's the next point that John wants to make. This enemy is a persistent enemy. We read that he once was and now is not, but will come again. Some people have said that's a reference to, to Nero who uh, was killed, died, disappeared, and then people talked about him coming back to life again. That was a common myth at the time. It could be, but actually it's more than Nero. This is saying, yeah, the enemies of God sometimes are at the forefront and sometimes seem to be disappearing, but they'll come again because evil is persistent in our world until Christ returns. They seem so powerful, but actually they're vulnerable. These kings receive authority from God, we're told, verse 12. For one hour, their power is temporary. Their power is insecure, is insecure and transient. It's not their possession. They will come and they will go. Look back through history. Empires have risen and empires have fallen. It's happened to every empire to this point in history. They also are blasphemous, like the great prostitute is. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. These kings don't recognize the true God, but give their allegiance instead to the evil power of the beast. But John is anxious that... In in spite of all that he said that makes them seem so significant and powerful, there's one more thing that you need to know, and that is that they are doomed. They go on their way to destruction. Even if they come back again, they're not going to be there forever. They're going to their destruction, says John, more than once. They were... And they are, and there may be a time when they seem to come back, but there will be a time 
when they are not. And if you read through right to the end of the chapter, one of the explanations given is that they won't survive because they'll turn on each other. They'll fall out with each other. They'll kill each other because that's the very nature of evil in the world in which we live. There's a deeper reason why they won't survive. And that's because they carry out the purpose of God, as verse 17 tells us, to actually remove all opposing authority to his will, to get rid of all the destructive powers of the world that enslave people and ruin his creation so that he might reign supreme in all things. Listen, the prostitute rides high in our world today. The beast is at liberty and at loose. The kings of the earth and the crowns and the horns are all around us who are bringing God's creation to destruction. So there's a spiritual battle going on. That's the default position in which we find ourselves. And that would be a gloomy thing. You could go home and have nightmares about this time. Please don't or I'll get sued by somebody or other. <laughs> but that's not what Revelation 17 is trying to tell you. It's not there to discourage you and make you gloomy. Just read, listen to the news for that. That'll be depressing enough. Where's Revelation 17 heading? Well, they, the enemies that we've been describing, make war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and those who are with him are called, are called and chosen and faithful. Who is the victor? Well, he's described in two ways, the Lamb and the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And he is the one who will conquer all opposition and all evil. The title of the Lamb points to how he wins. How does the Lamb conquer? There is only one Lamb in the book of Revelation. And that's the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb who was crucified. The Lamb who was killed. And God's strategy in overcoming the enemy is an amazing upside-down type of strategy. What do we do when we're faced by an enemy? We mass the armies. We invest in the weapons. We bring up the hardware. We fight weapon for weapon. But when God fights evil, he chooses this amazing upside-down strategy and sends out a lamb who gets killed. <laughs> He faces power with weakness, with vulnerability. He faces military might by voluntary surrender. He faces deceptive propaganda by sticking to absolute truth. He unmasks superficial rewards by talking about eternal rewards. And he embraces the worst that evil can do by embracing death on a cross, surrendering to it. The lamb 
that's spoken of earlier in Revelation chapter 5, that's described in the Old Testament in that great passage, Isaiah 53, that goes willingly, silently, illegitimately to his death and accepts it as our substitute, a lamb looking as though it has been slain, is God's way of victory. But it's not only a question of the lamb who points out how he wins the victory by the cross, by shedding his blood, not shedding the blood of his enemy, but it also, in that second title, describes why he wins. It is because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is the supreme overlord in our world. Others are usurpers. They don't have the right to ruin God's creation. A sovereign of the world he made. He has the rightful authority to step in and sort out the mess. It is him and to him alone that all allegiance and loyalty and obedience is due. And anybody who usurps that becomes an enemy of God doing a disservice to humanity. And so every power which sets itself up takes Christ on and seems to get rid of him by killing him on a cross, doesn't know what it's doing. It sets itself up against God and inevitably it will be, as somebody has said, broken on the cross of his son of Jesus Christ. Take on God, powers of evil if you must, but be sure of your doom. You will lose. So we come tonight faced with a, a world that's surrounded by problems enmeshed in difficulties, wherever you look. And we wonder who's in control. But we come as Christian believers having faith in the fact that our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the Lamb who has won the victory. He's conquered evil. And one day that will be manifest by all. But there's one more thing here that we ought to take notice of. The lamb doesn't fight alone. The lamb has an army with him. Who is the army? The victor is accompanied by an army that, that actually don't gain the victory. The victory is his. But are there by his side as that victory is won and following in his footsteps, imitate his life. They're described here. The enemies. Uh, make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him who are called and chosen and faithful. The Lord's army consists of a people who are called up, who have been enlisted in that army. They've been selected and gone through training. They're chosen. And now, like any good soldier who is enlisted and swears an oath of loyalty to the sovereign, his people swear total allegiance and loyalty to him. They are called, they are chosen, and they are faithful. They don't give up. They persevere. They don't owe allegiance to the enemy. 
They don't compromise. They're totally at the behest of the sovereign. He is, as uh, C.S. Lewis went on to say when I talked about him saying that we live in enemy-occupied territory, he goes on to say uh, the rightful king who's come in disguise uh, through the cross is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. The question tonight is, whose side are you on? It's as simple as that. Have you heard the call? Have you enlisted in the king's army? Are you being faithful? Oh, it won't necessarily be easy. This passage talks not only about how they are described, called, chosen, and faithful, but it talks about their experience. Uh, yeah, that prostitute was drunk with the blood of the saints. For some, there will be tough days ahead. Many of our friends are around the world have been martyred because they are Christians and they stand out in opposition to their societies. But that's no mistake, no accident, for they are following in the footsteps of the Lamb who shed his own blood. And victory comes by us carrying the cross, not by committing violence, but by submitting to violence. We don't fight with the weapons of human warfare, but we fight using the strategy that God has given, which always takes us back to the cross. Listen, we live in a warfare situation. Like any war, we're not constantly conscious of it every day. The strategies vary. The time, uh, sometimes it's more intense than others. But that's the situation. Evil is rampant. But victory is assured. And we know because of the death and resurrection of Jesus and his exaltation in heaven that he has conquered. Whose side are you on? Have you enlisted in the army? If not, maybe it's time to join the fight and follow the Lamb wherever he goes.